Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today, I spoke with Warrant Officer Class 1 Elizabeth Matthews, OAM, a currently serving member of the Australian Army. We spoke about her peacekeeping operations, her deployment to Afghanistan, and life in the modern military. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm joined by Warrant Officer Class 1 Elizabeth Matthews, OAM. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Liz. My pleasure. Liz, what inspired you to join the Army? I was 20 years old and I finished school and I'd worked a couple of years full time in different jobs, mainly in the health arena. And I was also finished my enrolled nurse training as well. And I was working as an enrolled nurse as long with a cook, being a cook in local pubs and different things. And I decided that uh, prior to me turning 21, I decided that I needed to do an adventure. I needed to do something that was going to be totally different. So I applied to recruiting and I got accepted. And ironically, they wanted to take me before my 21st birthday. But I'm also a twin and we had already arranged a huge combined birthday party with my twin brother and I for our 21st. So ironically, the defence were more than happy to take me on the 12th of November. So a month after my birthday, I joined the army in 1986. Did your brother have any military inclination? My brother had no military inclination. He was in a, he'd finished his apprenticeship with Ford Motor Company and he was a very high-ranking fitter and turner, draftsman of cars in Ford Motor Company at the time. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood, where you grew up or what you liked to do as a kid? Yeah, certainly. I, um, so I was born in Coryong in Victoria which is uh, at the bottom of the snowy mountains there. And uh, my dad was a postmaster in the Australian Post Service and we moved around Victoria a fair bit. So we went from Coryong to Birigurra, which is uh, south of Geelong, between Colac and Geelong. We were there for a number, uh, number of years and then uh, we moved to Geelong to a small suburb of Highton. Ironically, when we moved to Highton, there was only three houses on our street and across the road was just paddocks for as far as the eye could see. Your interest in health, where did that come from? Oh, I've always been a very caring person. And uh, certainly, you know, I did my enrolled nursing before I joined the military. And when I wanted to join the military, I wanted those days, females went to, for medics anyway, females went to nursing corps, males went to medical corps. So we were classed as med assist and nurse assist. So from a health perspective, I really was keen to be a nurse assist in the military because I'd done the nursing outside and I thought my skills could be easily transferable. Certainly when I left school, my first job was actually working in a health food shop. So, you know, giving, advising people on vitamins and minerals and, and also working behind the sandwich bar because we had these healthy sandwiches that we used to make on a day-to-day -day basis. So I suppose that's where my health interest grew in, in having the ability to educate people and help people on their journeys of being a lot healthier in their life. Can you recount your early military training experiences for me? When I went to Kapuka, that was pretty, pretty scary. I arrived there in November, and uh, it was a time when um, that women in the lines 
had occurred probably a bit before that time, you know, back in the 85, because women started at Kapuka like mid-85, I think it was. So I wasn't one of the first female platoons to come through. And there were 62 girls in my platoon. You're there for, you know, three and a half months, and we marched out with 32 girls. So it was hard yucca. And I must say, given I was 21, I was actually pleased because I had some life experiences because the girls that I felt that struggled the most were the ones who were young, 17, straight out of school, and they didn't have any life skills, you know, post-school, so. Do you remember your passing out parade? Absolutely. My whole family came, my my uh, mum and dad and my twin brother and my older brother. They were there to watch me pass out and uh, certainly it was an amazing day. It was a relief actually, you know, you know that you've finished recruit training, you're going to go on to your initial employment training school, uh, which mine was at uh, Portsea in Victoria. Just the sensation of achievement was the biggest thing for me in that march out day. That distinction between nursing training and medical training, when did that change and merge so there wasn't the gender barrier anymore? Yeah, so in 1988, they disbanded Nursing Corps for ORs, for other ranks, and we all became, all of us females became under the management of Royal Australian Army Medical Corps. Whilst we we were managed by them, we could elect to, whether we wanted to keep the badge, keep wearing the nursing corps badge, but be managed by medical corps, or we could change badges. A lot of the girls changed badges initially straight away, but I actually served 20 years with that badge on my hat because it was the corps that I joined, and but that didn't make any difference in regards to the work that I did in uh, being a medic in the Australian Defence Force in the Army. It didn't limit opportunities, it just was that sort of symbol of allegiance. Certainly in the early years, the perception was for nursing corps, for females, we didn't, we weren't supposed to carry weapons, we weren't supposed to go, you know, do field. We were sort of stuck in the health facilities doing the general nursing stuff. But when I went through the Army, certainly that wasn't the case. It didn't matter whether you had a nursing corps badge on or a medical corps badge on. You were classified as a medic and you went and did med support, you went out bush, you did lots of different tasks, yeah. Let's jump ahead and talk about your first overseas deployment to Cambodia. In the early 1990s, Australia commits its largest overseas deployment since Vietnam. Before we get into your personal experiences there, can you please briefly recap for our listeners what was going on at the time and why Australian troops were deployed? So obviously Cambodia was a peacekeeping mission to go in and try and bring peace to the country and have our input in building their relationship, you know, assisting them in building their relationships, steady the country, I suppose, and assisting them in anything from health through to communications, through to logistics, providing support, building up training people, building up their ability to be able to stand on their own and look after themselves. Certainly that Pol Pot period was quite significant, had a a very nasty impact on the country. And whilst, certainly while I was there, you know, you saw that, you saw remnants of that and you still saw that type of behaviour occurring amongst the country's rogue militants of being the Khmer Rouge. And you were one of 1,200 Australians deployed there. What was your role? So I went in the second push in 92 and I was joined by a platoon size bunch of medics. We were all corporals and then we had one female sergeant. We had a nursing officer who was a captain and a doctor who is also a um, captain. And we came collectively together. So prior to leaving country, we all congregated down at Portsea at the School of Army Health to do our two week training. And we did a lot of point of injury, training and a lot of full-on 
understanding how to do different procedures because us as medics were going to be out, majority of us were out at lone places and you would be supporting anywhere between 100 to up to 500 coalition and UN personnel. When we deployed to Phnom Penh, you know, there was the normal, once you get into country, you get all the briefings and all the rest, you get all the kit issue and et cetera, et cetera. And then we were, it was basically a bit of a bomb burst, really. I was, after a week and a half being at Phnom Penh, I was then shipped up to Sam Reap. And that's where I spent majority of my time. Because 1,200 of you spread over, what, 60 locations? It sounds like quite thin. Yeah, yeah. So... Thankfully, we had comms those t- in those days. I mean, where I was at Seam Reap, we had a communications centre. There was only 17 of us there, 16 Australians and one New Zealand, and she was uh, communications. Out of the 17 of us, there was 15 communication-type people who, you know, worked the comms and worked in the communication centre, dealing with all the communications for that region. I was the medic and we had a driver and we also had a cook. We were a small detachment. We were within a compound that was within another compound and that outer compound was manned by a regime of different coalition people varying from the different months depending on what when it was. Can you walk me through your day-to-day? You know, my day involved uh, certainly in the morning I'd do sick parade for our people, any UN people that were in the compound. So where I was, there was about up to about 300 UN personnel within the outer compound, living in the outer compound. They'd come and see me initially before I would need to send them down to the local hospital to see the doctors. Then my, one of my tasks was to go with the, the cook, Dom, and we would then go down to the local markets and we, I would accompany him because we always went everywhere in pairs and I'd accompany him to go down there for him to get the daily buy of our fresh fruit and vegetables. What was the atmosphere of the markets like? Do you know, initially I found it quite interesting. I was fortunate enough before I deployed to Cambodia, I got selected to go and do a three-month Khmer colloquial course down at the School of Langs in Victoria. So I had enough knowledge and understanding to be able to understand when the locals talked, I could pick up pieces of what they were saying so I could understand what they were saying. And it was interesting when I first deployed there and uh, I was only the first couple of weeks and because I'm a female soldier, you know, female soldiers in those times were quite unique to coalition and also the countries because some of the countries didn't have female soldiers in their armies at that point in time. And we'd go down to the markets and there was always these old gentlemen that used to sit out the front of the markets where the entrance where you go in. And certainly wherever we went, we had our weapons with us, you know. Where I was at CM Reap, which is very uh, famous for Angkor Wat, the Khmer Rouge were active in that area. So we were always um, armed when we went out of the camp and uh, we always went in pairs. And it was used to be funny going to the markets and hearing these old boys, you know, as soon as I walked up, they were chatter, chatter, chatter about me and being a soldier and being a female and wonder if I was tough or wonder what would happen if I had to confront someone, would I kill someone, etc., etc. And it used to amuse me. And I kept up that listening for about a month. And then one day they just amused me even more. So I actually came out with some statement and started talking to them in Khmer language. And they were a bit shocked. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn. They were all giggling and, yeah. So the markets were a great experience. We we had two local girls that they were sisters. They worked in our camp. Uh, they used to work with Dawn helping cooking the meals and they used to do our washing and stuff like that. And it was their parents or their family, extended families, veg, fruit and vegetable store that we used to buy our fruit and veggies from. And I, I must say, they were the most freshest fruit and vegetables you could ever imagine. You know, fresher sometimes than you'd ever get in Australia. Sounds like a delightful deployment. Yeah. 
when you were out in the markets, what were you armed with? Oh, we had our weapon, our guns, our um, styres and, you know, rounds and, yeah. After Cambodia, where are you off to next? So I got home from Cambodia and uh, after a break I got posted to Townsville. And ironically the Bougainville issue sort of started up and started to erupt and they decided they wanted to send in a peacekeeping force. Now the unit I was posted to, at that point in time, half the unit had deployed off to Rwanda uh, for that um, tour. And uh, it basically came down to whatever was left in the unit, they were, you know, the health personnel left in the unit, we were off to Bougainville. So we went in September in 94 as a peacekeeping mission because they were running, the PNG and the parliaments there were running peacekeeping talks and there was a lot of people coming in off down from the mountains, out from the villages into Arrowa and Bougainville for these peacekeeping talk, uh, talks. Now, our deployment was made up of, we had Australian logistics, army, navy, air force logistics staff, health staff, and our infantry who were there to protect us were mainly from Fiji, Solomons and Vanuatu. So we were a mixed force that was collectively put together and we deployed to, um, in 94 to Bougainville. Did you have much contact with the locals? Absolutely. So it's unfortunate that uh, we were actually only on the ground 21 days. The talks failed which is unfortunate, we were gone within 24 hours. But during the time we were there, we certainly treated, you know, gunshot wounds, machete wounds of people that had come down from the villages to be part of the peace talks. But, you know, due to the issues between the arm, the local armies and the militants and all the rest of it, you know, there was people being shot, there was people being attacked and disagreements having been had at the checkpoints that the local military had set up. And so we were receiving those casualties. Through my time in the military, as I went through my courses through the military and not just my medics course, but through my leadership training. I mean, I was a corporal when I went on to Cambodia and to Bougainville and I was a senior corporal when I went to Bougainville. You gain a bit of resilience you know, through your military training, not necessarily, and then through your ongoing clinical training, you gain resilience. So you learn to be able to, I suppose, shut things out. So when you're confronted with concerns or issues, at the end of the day, it's not about the emotional well-being of the person you're treating. It's about you just doing the greatest good. It might sound a bit rough, but for me, it doesn't matter what that person is who's laying on the ground. My sole focus is to treat what I see. Now, whether it's a bleeding wound or, you know, something, a limb's missing or whatever, my sole focus is to focus on the wounds that I'm treating. Obviously, you know, being cognizant of the met, the person themselves and what they're displaying in regards to pain thresholds or whether they're alert or all the rest of it. But I've learnt over the years to make sure that I can shut that emotion out so it doesn't impact on me. To be the most efficient, helpful, useful soldier you can be, you need to detach yourself emotionally sometimes Absolutely. just to execute the function. So around this time of the early 90s, we have Cambodia, Rwanda, Bougainville, and they're really expanding the role of the Australian Defence Force to be peacekeepers as well. Are you observing a cultural change in defence during this time? Certainly any deployment for a defence person is, you know, exciting. I felt that at that time, you know, we already had quite a large contingent who'd been to Somalia. We had a contingent on their second rotation to Rwanda. So I think that the Australian Defence Force's input into all these missions was building for what may come in the future. And uh, I think it was quite unique that Australia was being asked 
to provide, you know, varying degrees of skill sets because we normally when it comes to deployment, if we're leading it, you know, Timor was very different. We led that push. But what happens is they'll, they'll ask for a certain skill set from our nation, certain skill sets to deploy, to join collectively together with coalition nations to put something forward on the ground to achieve a mission. What's next for you after Bougainville? After Bougainville, I got posted... I'd done an instructional posting between when I joined and before Cambodia, and then I moved back into the instructional world again, delivering health training and, and teaching young brand new medics in there on the job phase of their training. That was something that I really loved doing because it was, you'd get these young people in learning to be a medic working through their skills, working through their assessments, and they graduate with all these skills and you having the knowledge know that you've imparted something of you onto them for them to progress and grow. For me, that was a personal achievement that I really enjoyed. Certainly myself and the other corporal that I worked with at the, because I had two postings, you know, one prior to Cambodia and and, and then another one after um, Bougainville. Certainly, you know, there was a bit of camaraderie between me and the other corporal when we had this, because you used to have sections of students whose section would get the student of merit. So, you know, you used to push your students quite hard. And I was known to be very tough in those days when I was a young corporal because I expect very high standard and I wouldn't let my students get away with just doing the 80% solution because it was all about the uniqueness of the care that you're going to provide to a patient or a casualty. And some point after that, you're sent to the UK. I was. Uh, when I was a sergeant, we have a activity that occurs annually at this point in time. I believe it's still annually, but it was certainly then. It's called Exercise Long Look. So we do an exchange program with the UK. So they send people over to work in the Australian Army, Navy and Air Force, and we vice versa send people over to their units to do the same thing. And you're basically swapping out with another person from that unit. I was fortunate enough to be nominated to do the trip in 1997. And I was based at 33 Field Hospital, which was only a brand new unit. They'd only been established for 18 months. And they were located at HMAS Dolphin, um, or HMS Dolphin, I should say, at Portsmouth in uh, the south of England. I enjoyed my trip in England because I was fortunate enough because I was their first long looker. I got to see a lot of the country and they sent me on numerous different activities. I even went with a coalition deployment to Italy. There was Canadians, Italians, Americans, two Australians, myself and a military policeman from the long look. We all congregated in uh, to do a joint coalition exercise for a couple of weeks in Italy. So I, I worked at the Edinburgh Tattoo for two weeks um, as a medic, working on the tattoo, working in the health centre. So And while I was in Scotland, obviously, I got to travel around the different areas. My unit went out, we went out field this time and they wanted to achieve setting up a 200-bed field hospital, biggest field hospital that anyone had ever thought about in the military setting up. So it was an experiment for the UK forces to do that. So I made sure that the two nursing officers that were on long look with me, they came to the activity as well. So the three of us came and we were out bush for two weeks. And ironically, two of the gentlemen that I met, they later became my bosses in the Australian Army because they lateral transferred to the Australian Army. And then you're back to Australia. Do you continue your teaching? No, so I was posted to the field hospital and I spent a lot of my time outfield, actually, basically. You know, if deployments came up, I was outfield. And, and we spent a lot of time out training, mentoring our young medics, still doing clinical training in the units. But then Timor erupted and obviously our unit 
were selected, the field hospital, to go over and um, go into Timor, um, what we call D plus 14, so 14 days post the first lot going in, to set up a field hospital. And we were there to provide humanitarian care and obviously also care to our, our own personnel who had deployed. And that was obviously one of Australia's biggest deployments as a host nation uh, for a very, very long time. Can you share any memories from your time in Timor that really stand out in your mind? You know, there's one particular thing that really stood out for me. I, I deployed on that um, activity as a the operations sergeant for the op cell for the hospital, even though I'm a medic. And I was also what we call the ward master. So I used to manage or do all the statistics for the patients in and out. And I used to go to meetings every day into Interpet headquarters to provide those statistics and, and also assist the A&E cell in regard in the headquarters to, you know, move people back home to Australia as required. And also our locals moving them back to where they needed to go. But one thing stands out in my mind, we received an elderly lady in who had been um, mistreated very badly by, you know, the rogue people of uh, Timor at the time. And she'd come in and we'd done some significant surgery on this lady. She was in her late 60s, early 70s. And uh, it's just unfortunate she got a severe infection during her time with us. She was only with us for about six days and she passed away. She was brought into us. She came from a village high up in the mountains and our infantry guys had brought her into us. And they were the only ones who knew where she came from. And we were determined to send her back because we, back to where she came from for a family village burial. She was very high up in her village as an elder. So we felt that we needed to send her back. So it took us some time to organise, get a grant to one, get the military chopper asset to take her back, to find a team that actually brought her, picked her up in the first place and brought her to us so that they could, they remembered which village, because we're high up in the villages in those days in the mountains of Timor. There was no road transport. It was just, everything was by foot. So she was, taken out by our helicopter and we needed a helicopter to take her back. It was interesting to be on that trip, to be part of that trip to actually escort the body back. When we landed at the village, we, you know, the guys thought that was where they'd picked her up from. It was deserted. You know, as we were going into land, the place was deserted. You couldn't see anybody, no one around. Soon as the two choppers landed, these people just came out from behind trees, behind bushes, from, you know, different huts. It was like the whole village just came and one of the guys that was with us was an interpreter. Now, as soon as they knew we had this lady on board, it was, you know, I'm feeling the emotion now, understanding how, what we'd done for them. There was people in tears that, you know, and they couldn't stop touching myself and my operations officer who came with me, Georgina Whelan. They were touching us, you know, constantly thanking us in their language. They couldn't be so more gracious. I've never seen anyone so gracious in my life. You know, we had the lady, you know, appropriately um, dressed. We helped them with the stretcher off to their little hut and we stayed with them for a period of time, for about two hours, you know, so the interpreter could talk to us through the village elders in regards to the, what we'd done, what treatment we'd done on the lady and what, how we tried to save her. So it was a very emotional and moving experience and to the point where uh, the soldiers that were with us, the infantry guys that were with us, the special operations guys that were with us, they were tearing up because it was so emotive to know that we had been able to assist a um, family and also a village to 
do their pay their respects appropriately for you know this elder did you ever hear from the village or any of no 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 you know once we you know we said our departed and said our goodbyes um that was it yeah but just the emotion of a feeling that we'd achieved something that that was the biggest reward for all of us that went on that trip that day was that something that would have uh, played on the back of your mind? I imagine that, you know, this is a remote village. You need a helicopter to get there. It was a struggle to get her to you in the first place. Do you feel there could have been other communities out there just that you could have helped, but due to obstacles of logistics and inaccessibility, you just weren't able to? Absolutely. You know, you can only help, you know, the few that could be brought to the attention. It was only that the... You know, the special operations guys were on a recce that day and they were flagged down. You know, there would have been so many locals who may have been in that state that, you know, obviously didn't get to receive our care and, and, and obviously passed away. How long were you in Timor for? Uh, so we went in September 99 and the majority of us started to come home uh, January and February 2000. Not long after Timor, an event occurs that sends shockwaves around the world. Do you remember where you were when 9-11 took place? Yes, yeah, so I was posted to Aubrey Wodonga then and um, in the training development cell. units where we write training for capability, to meet capability requirements. I recall getting home from work and seeing the, the footage because I lived on a property out of Yakandanda in Victoria at the time and seeing the footage and the emotion that I felt was just unbelievable. Thinking about those poor members on the plane, thinking about what they were feeling at the time, knowing they're on a hijacked plane and whether they would survive. Thinking about the people that were in those buildings when the when the plane hit, or some people may have even seen the plane coming because they were on that their desks were on that side of the building. Yeah, I, I just thought that uh, obviously the whole world was in shock from that activity or from that event, and you know, and it was all a matter of what now, what next. Was that question being asked in particular in the military? You've um, off the back of a decade of you know intense peacekeeping operations. Was that question being asked? I think things are about to gear up and change for us. Post that year of that event, certainly I think across the world, defence forces were ramping up their training even more to be even further high in regards to their readiness and un and understanding and making sure that their troops were ready to deploy. And that's not just military-wise from a perspective of being able to fight, but this is their own personal well-being and psychologically being resilient. When were you deployed to Afghanistan and in what capacity? So I went to Afghanistan in November 2011. I was a, what we call as an embed. There was 52 of us. We were embedded with the Americans uh, in a NATO headquarters in Kandahar. My role was, I was a duty officer on the patient evacuation coordinational cell desk. And my role was co-ord the collection of casualties across an area the size of New South Wales. So we had a number of evacuation platforms situated across that area. And when events occurred, we would dispatch the choppers out to pick up the casualties, delegate where those choppers would return the casualties to, to the health facilities or wherever, whichever region uh, they were set up. 
And then once their initial care had been given, then look to then move them on to a higher graded facility, uh, whether that was back to Kandahar, to the Roll 3 level hospital. Uh, if they were Afghan forces, we would bring them back to Kandahar to their military hospital, which was was about three k's outside the front gate of our air base in Kandahar. Or whether they were, if they were American coalition forces besides Australian, they used to go off to Bagram um, and then on to Germany. Our guys used to obviously come back to Kandahar and then follow that route and go on to Germany prior to them being flown home. It's 10 years on from 9-11 by then. What's the atmosphere like on base and how are the locals when you interact with them? So I was on an air base. We'd had about approximately 30,000 people on it. So it's a busy atmosphere. It was a very, very busy. It was one of the busiest airports in the world. We had a numerous different coalition forces there and they had a large contingent of civilian contractors that were there to provide different resources like messing and um, logistics and things like that that the forces may not necessarily supply. It was an interesting experience being embedded with the Americans. Um, I was with 82nd Airborne and they are very airborne and very airborne in their nature and attitude. <laughs> but I I think the experience and the exposure that I received, because within the Joint Operations Centre, there was approximately 80 people on shift any one time, 24-hour operating centre, so we did shift work. And within that, you know, you had Australians, Americans, Italians, French, Canadians, Spanish, British, different coalitions working on different cells within the centre on different aspects. And we were 500 metres from the airfield. So, you know, the noise was an interesting experience alone, sitting in your the operations cell and having to deal with those jets going, taking off, you know, every, every day and, and, and aircraft landing and taking off. So it was certainly, um, I found it very exciting, but also I found it I was always on edge, particularly not when I was necessarily at work, but when I was walking to and from work. Because we carried weapons. When we were on the airbase, we just carried pistols. But if we went out to what we called outside the wire, we carried pistols and styres and you had your full load of ammunition, you know, for protection purposes. Are there any particular memories that stand out in your mind you'd like to share from Afghanistan? My biggest memory is, and I got, an, I got a couple of awards for this activity my biggest memory was I'd only been there a month and it, and it's all about proving yourself, you know. You, you're working, you're embedded with a coalition force and they need to know that you are as good as that you're portraying. And I'd only been there approximately four weeks and I was on night shift and we had a casualty, a night, what we call a nine-liner drop to say we had 12 casualties. It turned out to be 14 and they were very north of our area that we were looking after, our AO um, area of operations um, that we were looking after and they were about a probably a 30, 40 minute chopper flight from Tarankout. And we launched the two choppers to pick up the first eight casualties. And it wasn't until they were back in the air coming back that we found out there was actually 14 casualties, not 12. And the choppers can only take four each. So we had left, you know, four, but now six behind. We allocated the two, the four each of the casualties to the two, what we call Roll 2 facilities at Tarankout. One was run by a mixture of American Army and Australian Army, and the other one was run by a mixture of American Army, Australian Army and American Navy. And uh, they were in separate compounds because the Australian Army one was in our, one of our, our compound with inside where the Australian forces in Tarankout lived. And the Australian, uh, the American Navy one was inside what they call the SOTEF, so the Special Operations Compound. 
and they never really used to communicate much between each other. But that night when we had this event happen, it was a matter of them collegiately getting together, talking to each other, working out what they can handle out of all these casualties. Because they were Afghan border police, all these casualties, and we had no coalition fighting forces on the ground in that area. So our choppers went into a zone and the messaging we were receiving was very unsure in regards to their wound suites. So we didn't know, we knew they were a mixture of gunshot, grenade, but we didn't know what category type patient they were. So... Just managing that whole event, you know, I was responsible for managing that whole event that night, advising the shift director, who was an American major, about what we need to do, what where we need to, what assets we need to launch, who we need to shift to where, gearing up a fixed-wing aircraft to come and pick up the excess, contacting another area of operations and a region, so what we called South uh, West Region. We then ended up, because of the time difference of the flight for Tarankout, we only launched two choppers to pick up the casualties. We left the other two on the ground because if another event had occurred at the same time, we needed to have that asset. Liaison with the South West Region for them to go and pick up the other six. And they were very excited because they'd had no action for six weeks. So they were more than happy to go and pick up the other six and take it. But I think the biggest thing, there was a lot of lessons learned from that activity in the sense that they'd never used a C-130 to go and pick up excess casualties before and bring them back to Kandahar. We'd never transferred casualties from the Kandahar Coalition Roll 3 uh, to the military Afghan hospital in the middle of the night. We'd never done that before. We got two Roll 2 medical establishments working collegiantly together. That hadn't done happened in a, a little while. So all those lessons learned gained from that activity and saw me and my American friend that I was working with on the desk that night who was a sergeant who was a lower rank than me. We were recognised by the general at the time at uh, headquarters RC South for that what we did to save the lives of all these all 14 casualties. And what was the decoration you received for that? So that was a, uh, you know, we got asked to go to a parade. We turned up and we were given a two-star commander's coin and a certificate of commendation for that event. And I was in um, Afghanistan November 11 to June 12. And for my whole time there of working in, on that desk, being a duty officer and, and working alongside the coalition and teaching a lot of the coalition, you know, different ways of thinking of how they could do things, particularly the medical fraternity. I received the US Commendation Medal for my time in, in Afghanistan as well, which is this one here that I wear today. Congratulations. Can you walk me through some of the highlights from your time in Afghanistan to your current role today? So I, I returned home from Afghanistan in June 2012 and when I left I was posted headquarters for command in the operations in the health branch in the op cell. I was the senior medic for Fort Command and um, after that I got posted to the Directorate of Army Health here at Army Headquarters in Canberra as the senior medic for Army basically. And um, I was there for three years and I enjoyed my time because I built up over my career different levels of headquarters that I'd worked in. You know, I'd been at a brigade headquarters and then I went to headquarters full command, then I went to army headquarters. And now ironically, you know, I'm now in a, the command run officer for a joint, joint health headquarters and command. So between um, now and between Afghanistan and now, I haven't been overseas, but certainly, you know, I've ensured that I've visited different, I've been on different activities, being an instructor in pre-deployment health training, you know, making sure that our people are ready. And it doesn't matter what core you are, everyone deserves to get pre-deployment health training so that they are ready to one, i.e. treat themselves or to treat their buddy. Because it's that point of injury care, which is the most important part of dealing with operational wounds and it's that first care that you give will dictate whether that person's going to survive or not. 
you know, whether you do it on yourself or you do it on your buddy, it's the same scenario on how you apply uh, the principles of doing that point of injury care. And I think one of the biggest things I've noticed over my last couple of years that I've, I've met people that I've instructed on that pre-deployment health training and they have either one had to put, apply some sort of treatment to themselves or applied it to their body and those people have lived and they've been so thankful for the training that they've received in regards to the training that we deliver in the army. One of the things I, I constantly got told when I was working with the Americans in Afghanistan that the Australian Army are one of the highest professional trained personnel that they have ever worked with because we are very serious about making sure our personnel are well looked after and that their care that we provide them in the, a battle sense, uh, they are given the best available. Other things I've done is worked on different projects for capability towards capability, whether it'll be health equipment or having an input into how we deploy our facilities, our health facilities, whether it be in Australia or overseas. And Liz, you received another high decoration in 2014. Yes, I was a bit uh, humble when I uh, found out about that. I, I was away and my partner had rung me. I was in the Brisbane airport coming home from an activity, from a pre-deployment health training activity. I was sitting in the Brisbane airport, I'm waiting to get a microplane to come to Canberra and my partner rung me and he said, there's an envelope in the mail here today for you and it's from Government House. I went, what? What is that? <laughs> you need to open it. I don't know what that is. And ironically, he'd received an OAM the year before, so he had an inkling of what it was. So he opened it read it out to me and I was gobsmacked. I was just, I didn't know what to say. I thought, my God, who would ever think to put me up for something like that? And my first point of call was Brigadier Georgina Whelan. And she, her and I have been friends in the military for like 28 years. We're very close out, out of work. So my first phone call before I even got on the plane to Canberra was to ring here and go, do you know anything about this? It was between her and um, at the time, now Brigadier um, Colonel Len Brennan and my current boss at the time at, at Army Headquarters, Caitlin Langford, she's, who's now a full Colonel. Those three had collectively put me up for it. And I was very honoured because it was for my time as as the senior medic at headquarters 17 brigade, as the senior medic at headquarters 4 commander, and, and, this, and I'd only been at the director of health 12 months and it was for my time there. So for those, my services over those postings and what I'd achieved and what I'd managed to contribute to the army health across varying different platforms or different things, whether it's projects or pre-deployment health training or, you know, sustainability. So I received that in September 14 from the Governor-General. And interestingly, the Governor-General, he was also our commander in uh, Timor. So when I received that from him, he reminisced a bit with me when I was standing up in front of him to get that from him. So I can imagine when you were back in Timor, you weren't picturing Peter Cosgrove to be later pinning this award on your chest over a decade later. The modern ADF is really marketing itself successfully as a pro-women equal opportunities organisation. How have you seen the culture in the army change for women over your years in there? So I'm reaching 31 years on the 12th of November this year. And I think the opportunities open to women from when I joined to now as, is very extensive and quite expanse. You know, you see a lot of women given better opportunities to be in the higher ranks for leadership. You know, we've only just appointed our first female brigadier in charge of a brigade. That was never heard of in my time when I first joined the army in my early years. You would never ever see that. And whilst we were required to try and maintain our requirements, there seemed to be a bit of softness on females. But nowadays it's 
it doesn't matter. It's exactly the same. You know, the testing's the same. Your requirement to meet and be up there as equal as your colleagues or your peers in regards to your skill set, exactly the same. There's no let up anymore, whereas before it was a bit lenient. But I think personally that is a good thing because I think it, it, it toughens people, it grows people, it allows people to be empowered. And all of that, I believe, builds resilience. What's your next adventure, Liz? My next adventure, funny you say that, you know, I'm reaching, um, realistically, I end this posting at the end of next year, or January 19, I finish in this current position. And I only have two years to go and I turn 55 and I'm entitled to my a pension if I want. So I, my next adventure, I'm seriously looking at, maybe it's time to grow up and go and do something different. What I would like to move into, I'm not sure. You know, I'm dabbling in coaching and leadership at this present, executive coaching and leadership at this present time. I'm also, I love being in that high octane uh, operational planning space as well. I love being involved in operational planning and, and plans. So what the future holds for me at this time, I'm not quite sure, but certainly uh, my main aim is to continue with some ongoing professional development uh, to build up my tertiary education and my skills in, in coaching and leadership and operational plans. So. Well, Liz, you've given a lot for your country and been appropriately recognised. Thank you for your service. We are grateful. And thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. It's appreciated. That was my chat with Warrant Officer Class 1, Elizabeth Matthews, OAM. Thanks go to Defence Media for organising the interview. Keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. And don't forget our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>